First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. I'm one of the hosts of the podcast. My name is Kevin Valentin. And I'm the other host of the podcast. My name is Kyle Dabro. Kev, we got an action-packed episode today. we got a lot to get to. Uh, I'll let you have the floor to set up the agenda, but, bro, this is going to be fun. Yeah, I was thinking about this all day, man. Obviously, guys, we have the Super Bowl on Sunday. It's going to be huge. Obviously, Kansas City versus the Eagles. Then, of course, you have the NBA trade deadline that happened. Get some trades prior to the deadline, some trades at the deadline. It was kind of one of those busy days. I mean, Woj and Shams were just going absolutely nuts. It was entertaining for Kyle and I, even though we were both at work. But, I mean, constant Twitter updates, constant Sports Center updates. I mean, you name it, it happened. So we're going to just dive right into this. We don't want to waste any time because we know for a fact this is going to be a quite, I would say, a decently long one, wouldn't you? It'll be a lengthy one, but I think we'll be fine. Yeah, we'll see we should be straight. So kind of just to break the agenda down in detail, um, like I said, Super Bowl on Sunday. So Kyle and I are going to give our official predictions. Uh, and then we're going to kind of slide into our X factors for who we feel is going to be the most important player or position to create the biggest opportunity for respective teams to win. So we're going to break that down into two different segments. Um, and then, of course, we're going to transition right into the NBA. And, of course, like we said, the trade deadline happened. It came and went, as it normally does. Finished today at 3 p.m. And there were some big moves. Kevin Durant is on his way to Phoenix. We had the Lakers buy out Russell. Excuse me. The Lakers trade Russell Westbrook. He's potentially getting bought out. The Lakers also made some additional moves to get Mo Bamba. Traded Patrick Beverly. I mean, like I said, there is just so much going on. We're going to talk about uh, the Lakers in depth a little bit more, since they are probably going to be featured in our next segment, which I'm going to get to in a second. And then, of course, we have to talk about, overall, the big trade. Kevin Durant goes over to Phoenix, and the haul that Brooklyn got for him is quite impressive, which is the perfect transition into our last topic of the day, which is going to be the winners and losers of the trademark or the trade deadline. Um, we're going to get into who we believe are the winners, who we, we believe are the losers that should have made a move. Kyle and I, ironically enough, are actually on the exact same page for both winners and losers. So rather than Kyle and I go back and forth for each, Kyle's going to go into a little bit more depth on the winner side since we feel that the Lakers are there. And then I'm going to go into the losers as to what teams I feel should have made something happen and chose to not. So without further ado, let's just dive right into the Super Bowl. Patrick Mahomes, Jalen Hurts in Arizona. What a game this is said to be. Oh, 100%. And I mean, look, we have both of the number one seeds coming from each respective conference. Obviously, Kansas City is the number one seed in the AFC. The Eagles are the number one seed in the NFC. And honestly, the way that I see it, this is setting itself up to be a fantastic Super Bowl. 
Uh, when you look at the Eagles this year, just the way that they have responded from last year's what I would consider disappointing playoff loss to the Bucks, and completely forgetting about that and going all the way to the Super Bowl this year, not only in Jalen Hurts' young career, but also Nick Sirianni's young head coaching career. It is quite impressive. Uh, they have one of the best defensive units that the NFL has seen in quite some time. And then you juxtapose that with what the Chiefs have done. The Chiefs have been to multiple Super Bowls in the last three to four years. They've been a model of consistency. The AFC has run through Arrowhead the last couple of years. And outside of the Bengals and maybe the Patriots a couple of years ago, there really hasn't been a team to threaten their top spot in the AFC. And they are back at the big game once again. Patrick Mahomes is going for his second Super Bowl in four years. Uh, this is his third Super Bowl appearance within his relatively short career. And he's got a chance to really cement himself as honestly one of the best quarterbacks of his generation and to do it at such a young age is quite impressive overall that's the setup for you guys so let's not waste any more time let's dive into this game kev to kick this one to you we've got the chiefs and the eagles meeting in super bowl 57 on sunday who do you think is going to win and become super bowl 57 champs i mean i know i picked against them in the first round in the divisional well first round for them but I got to rock with Philadelphia, man. Um, I, I believe that on paper, Philadelphia has a more loaded roster. They are more prepared. They have a deeper roster in terms of positional players, like a pool of players that can actually come in and alleviate some starters. And what I mean by that is I think specifically that the Philadelphia Eagles defensive line is probably the deepest that I've seen in a long time. And I think that that is going to be a key factor for me specifically as to why I believe the Eagles are going to win. I know that the Chiefs have a pretty solid offensive line, but when it turns into the, like I said, the depth, the rotational players, I think Philadelphia is going to find a way to get to the quarterback. I mean, you went out and you got Indomitian Sue, Linda Vall Joseph, you have Josh Sweat, you have Fletcher Cox, you have Brandon Graham, you have Hargrave. I mean, you name it, Philly's got the pieces to go out and make big plays at the defensive line. And then you talk about probably the best secondary in football with Bradbury, Slay, Gardner Johnson. You have Mike Epps. You have Blankenship coming out in his rookie season undrafted. I mean, like I said, you just have a great overall defense, what I would consider to be arguably the best defense right there next to San Francisco. So when you combine that, right, veteran players from that team, from that previous Super Bowl team, are still there. You still have Fletcher. You still have BG to keep everybody kind of formulated together, everybody calm, cool, and collective. On the offensive side, you still have Jason Kelsey. You still have Lane Johnson to kind of keep and rally everybody together to keep them focused. And then, of course, the issue that I would probably have, Kyle and I were actually talking about this before, for Philadelphia would be the inexperience of Jalen Hurts in this type of environment. Not to say that he's not used to winning because we all know that he's been to two national championships and he's won two of them at Alabama. He's been to the college football playoff even as the quarterback at Oklahoma. So he doesn't necessarily shy away from big moments. He doesn't necessarily have that cocky mentality as most young quarterbacks do. I would say that he's very similar to Joe Burrow. Very cool, monotoned, focused on the directive. Excuse me, the direction the team needs to go on. Very similar to Kobe Bryant almost. He's like, job's not done. Like, the season's not over. Every interview you talk to him about after having an incredible game, um, uh, always kind of hyping his teammates up and, you know, just saying to everybody, like, I'm not, I don't care about being undefeated. I don't care about an MVP. I don't care about a Pro Bowl. Like, I'm focused on winning. 
And I think that confidence will play into Jalen Hurts and his poise will also help him focus. And I mean, quite frankly, with Philadelphia being one of the better rushing teams in the NFL, I feel like they are going to lean on that run game until they cannot know more, until they cannot anymore. So I feel like those quantitative pieces, um, all of that information that I believe is important and imperative is going to lead the Philadelphia Eagles into winning Super Bowl 57 and hoisting up that trophy yet again. Kev, I've been going back and forth the entire day. And honestly, I'll just break it down to you like this. My head is telling me the Eagles are going to win. My heart is telling me the Chiefs are going to win just because I know what Pat is capable of. And we have seen Pat make just unbelievable plays in the biggest stages of not just regular season games, but playoff games, Super Bowl games. But I am going to go with my head on this one. I'm going to favor the Eagles as well. And I do believe that they will be Super Bowl 57 champs like you just outlined. Overall, to me, when I look at the Eagles compared to the Chiefs, they are just a more well-rounded unit. Offensively, they're humming on all cylinders. And even though that I'm of the mindset that the Eagles have had a relatively easy path to get to the Super Bowl, look, you got to go up against your competition that you're given. And granted, there have been some things that have gone against some of the teams that they played. Obviously, San Francisco had Brock Purdy go through his shoulder injury that left him sidelined, and then they had to resort to a fourth-string quarterback. The Giants just got absolutely smoked by the Eagles. That was just more of a testament to the Eagles displaying, honestly, executing a game plan damn near to perfection. And I think going into this game, this will be their biggest challenge so far because, let's face it, the Chiefs have been here before. This is something that I, they have been accustomed to for the last couple of years. Ever since Pat has taken the reins as a starting quarterback for the Chiefs, they are in the hunt to be in the Super Bowl every year. And if they don't get there, they'd fall just short in the AFC Championship game. So this is a territory that the Chiefs know quite well. And like you said, Kev, there are some core players that were still from that Eagles team that won Super Bowl 52 a couple years ago. But by and large, this is a much more younger unit as a whole. And most of the players going on this Super Bowl team are not from that Super Bowl 52 team. So this will be a new environment and this will be a new challenge for them. But I do believe that they will be able to rise to the challenge and get it done on Sunday. To me, the game plan is going to be simple. From an offensive perspective for the Eagles, they have to get the ball out quick. The Chiefs have one of the best pass rushes in the game. They were number two in the league this year. And going up against the Bengals a couple of weeks ago in the ASU Championship game, they showed why. Chris Jones was a force of nature in that game and made some of the most critical plays in that game that sent Kansas City to the Super Bowl. And I believe if Nick Sirianni and the offensive coaching staff are looking at what the defense of the Chiefs present, it would be get the ball out early and focus on running the ball. If they're able to run the ball effectively and keep Patrick Mahomes on the sideline, that's going to be their best thing moving forward. And defensively, look, you're going up against Patrick Mahomes. He is clearly one of the best quarterbacks, if not the best quarterback of this generation. And even though that he may be hindered to a certain extent because of that high ankle sprain, the Eagles should not think that whatsoever. They need to bring a consistent pass rush the entire day and if they're able to win the battle on the line of scrimmage consistently throughout the game, I think that they will force the Chiefs into a situation where they're going to have to resort to Pat carrying them to that Super Bowl 
victory. And I do believe, like Kevin outlined, that that Eagle secondary can step up and make some critical plays and potentially get some turnovers against the Chiefs. It's not going to be easy because you know Pat has shown a tendency over the years to be pretty solid in not turning the ball over in these big moment games, especially in the playoffs. So it's going to be really the key emphasis for me is going to be that pass rush. If they can get home, that's where they could potentially make some plays and potentially force some turnovers as well. You know, when it comes to the Chiefs, the Chiefs definitely have a shot to win this game. I don't want to count them out entirely. It's just, to me, they seemed a little bit more dinged up going into this game. Going back to the AFC Championship game, there were plenty of injuries to go around with the Chiefs, and they were able to overcome that and, and beat Joe Burrow and the Bengals at home in a relatively close game. But going up just against a better overall team, the best well-rounded team that we have left in the Eagles, I don't think that Pat's going to be able to bring that Mahomes magic that we've seen him bring time and time again to a point where they can win Super Bowl 57. I think he's going to make it competitive, though. This, to me, has a very good chance of being a high-scoring game because if the Eagles defense can't slow down Pat, expect a shootout. This is going to be a game that could go back and forth, and it could be settled by a field goal when it's all said and done. Overall, though, I think the Eagles are going to make enough plays to get them over the hump and become Super Bowl champions in this Super Bowl 57 matchup. So the way that I see it, I got the Eagles winning this one by about three to six points. I do believe that Jalen Hurts has a very good chance of winning Super Bowl MVP, and the Eagles would win their second Super Bowl in what? five to six years be pretty impressive and to do it with a whole new coaching staff compared to what they had with Doug Peterson a brand new quarterback in Jalen Hurts compared to uh, Nick Foles things are looking pretty good for the Eagles moving on forward and um, when it comes to the Chiefs look they're going to be competitive it's just I don't think they're going to make enough plays and with the injuries that have lingered on from the AFC championship game a couple weeks ago that could show itself in this game but overall, I just have more faith that the Eagles are going to get it done and be Super Bowl 57 champs when it's all said and done. I'm hoping for a good game overall. Obviously, we all we all don't want to have another. No offense. Obviously, you guys won this, but I'm referring to. I know you know the game. That we don't want another Rams Patriots Super Bowl. That, I'll take it though. As as much as I like defensive battles for the sake of it being the actual big game, the final game of the year, you don't want to see something like that. The Eagles. Patriots won again. Sorry, don't mean to bring that up again. It was a loss for you guys, but okay. intent. It was intense score after score. There was it was it was turnover after turnover. Like mistakes were made on both sides, but the offenses definitely overshadowed those mistakes. So, if we can get something in the middle, like what the AFC Championship was, like twenty to twenty three, twenty three twenty, something like that, I would love it to come down to the wire. But we both may be picking the Chiefs, but I know that Kyle and I are on the same the wavelength. Eagles. Excuse me, the, the sorry, the, the Chiefs and the Eagles, but Kyle and I are on the same wavelength of Patrick Mahomes is still on the other team. It is quite possible for him to carve it up. And I'm not saying that despite Philly's secondary or defense, but we are talking about the best quarterback in the NFL in this very moment in time. If he's feeling it, if that offensive line gives him just a smidge of protection, Pat can easily run up a score 20, 30 points in two quarters, maybe even a quarter. We've seen it done a multitude of times in his career. Yeah. In the playoffs, too. So 
we give the respect to Pat. We give, obviously, the kudos to the offense of the Kansas City Chiefs and Andy Reid and that coaching staff and Eric Bieniemy of what they're able to do. We just have a little bit more faith that that Philly defense, based on what they've shown all year and the consistency and the depth that they have, it's going to make it a little bit more competitive than people are originally anticipating. So as we kind of transition there, I know we have to get into our X factors. So Kyle, what do you got for me? Yeah, it's going to be a pretty simple setup. So what we'll do is we will go over the X factors for each team. So Kev, let me get this straight just so that I have my uh, my account of this correct. Yes, sir. If we are picking the Chiefs X-Factors, meaning these are going to be the X-Factors in why the Chiefs would win the Super Bowl, Yes, and then you juxtapose it with the Eagles X-Factors in why these guys would be the primary forces for the Eagles to win, you want to set it up that way? Yes, sir. Okay, perfect. So pretty easy setup. So honestly, Kev, I'll just kick it to you. Who do you believe are going to be the X-Factors that we're going to see in Super Bowl 57 for each team. So for Kansas City, the X factor for me is going to be more of a position group. So I have the wide receiver core of the Kansas City Chiefs, specifically in Juju Smith-Schuster, as the X factor. We know what Travis Kelsey is going to bring to the table. We know what Patrick Mahomes is going to be able to do with his arm and his escapability if he's given time. But since Travis demands such an immediate double, an immediate, I got to cover this guy, you have to find somebody to step up that is not going to be expected. Now, I know that the secondary of the Eagles is arguably the best in the league, if not the best, but someone is going to have to make plays. Now, whether or not you actually line up James Bradbury or Darius Slay on Travis Kelsey or uh, Chauncey Gardner-Johnson directly, that leaves a lot of man-to-man coverage, which is exactly what the Eagles play. That's what they're known for because of how good their corners are. You are going to need to find a way to step up. And I think Juju Smith-Schuster, he's going to have to have the biggest game of his career here because they're going to be taking away Travis Kelsey as much as possible. Now, whether that's double team over the middle, dropping into some zone, I have no idea what... um, I think the coordinator for the Eagles is Shane Gannon. or uh, I I know he was a former Colt coordinator. I just can't remember his first name. But the point of what I'm getting at is Juju Smith-Schuster is going to have to come up big. He's going to have to create separation when given the opportunity with man-to-man coverage. And he is going to have to 100% have a big game. And with, of course, if I'm not mistaken, uh, McCole Hardman being put on injured reserve after that uh, AFC Championship game, the rest of that wide receiver core are going to have to make those big plays. So... I, I, I got to go with the wide receiver core specifically focused on Juju Smith-Schuster for the Chiefs. And then for the Eagles, I had mentioned it before, it has to be the defensive line. You have to win the battle of the trenches. Now, whether that is going to be the on the interior side with Joseph, Sue, and Fletcher Cox, whether that is going to be the edge with Sweat, Brandon Graham, and Hargrave, I don't know. But you definitely, definitely have to make Patrick Mahomes' life a living hell. You cannot let him get into a rhythm. You're going to have to keep him running consistently. And at the end of the day, if you have to lean on him a little bit, kind of pressure him, give him a couple hard hits, who knows? Maybe that ankle isn't completely healed. We all know high ankle sprains take high ankle sprains take a couple of weeks, if not months, to fully heal. It takes a couple hits to ruffle his feathers. We saw it happen against the Buccaneers a few years ago, and Pat was just not comfortable. I don't remember the number of yards, but I think he scrambled for well over 100 yards throughout the game just finding ways to stay on his feet without getting sacked. And it was just, you saw that Pat was gassed, the offensive line was gassed, and it was not a good look. And like I said, with Philly being this deep at that particular position, 
it is going to be a very long day for the Kansas City Chiefs to keep Patrick Mahomes upright. We know for a fact that the Chiefs have struggled at certain times in terms of turning the ball over. Pat had 12 interceptions this year. It's not necessarily unlike him, but he did turn the ball over in key situations throughout specific games this year. And if Philly's pass rush can get to him, don't be surprised if that secondary takes opportunities to go and reach out and get that ball or if, to, if the defensive line is able to force some turnovers uh, specifically at the fumble, uh, excuse me, specifically with causing fumbles and creating havoc in that backfield. So with me, uh, it's going to be pretty simple. Uh, I'm actually going to focus on the line of scrimmage uh, for both teams here uh, for my X factors because I'm of the mindset that, look, we always focus on the big name players that are going to come down with these uh, amazing catches or make these amazing plays. But sometimes you've got to win the battle in the trenches. And honestly, with the way that we've seen both teams get to this point, it's been largely due to the fact that both teams have won the battle on the line of scrimmage consistently throughout the game. So I'll start with the Chiefs and then I'll move to the Eagles. So my Chiefs X-Factors, if they were to be Super Bowl champions uh, on Sunday night, I think it would be in part because guys like Frank Clark and... Hold up, I'm drawing a blank here. I'm going to put the Jones. name here. Chris, thank you, Chris Jones. If Chris Jones and Frank Clark display what they had against the Bengals and then bring it in Super Bowl 57, they have a very good chance uh, to definitely make some plays for that Chiefs defense to get the ball back to Patrick Mahomes. And we saw it happen consistently uh, in that AFC Championship game because, Kev, let's be honest with you. You know, the Bengals in that divisional game against the Bills were pretty solid in protecting Joe Burrow that entire game. That did not happen in the AFC Championship because that Chiefs, D-line got after it. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, you had guys like Chris Jones and Frank Clark come up with some big plays, especially Chris Jones. Chris Jones pretty much got that last sack uh, with only about a minute left to go in that fourth quarter against the Bengals in the AFC Championship game that got, that got the ball back to the Chiefs in which Pat led the game-winning drive to set up uh, Harrison Butker for the game-winning field goal that sent the Chiefs to the Super Bowl. So to me, if the Chiefs defensive line, specifically Chris Jones and Frank Clark, can bring that type of pressure consistently against Jalen Hurts, force him off his spot, and potentially get some sacks along the way, I think that will bode very well for the Chiefs as a whole going into Super Bowl 57. And then to kick it to the Eagles. Uh, to me, Kev, I know they don't get a lot of shine, and I know they don't get a lot of attention, but I'm going to give them a little bit of credit here. Um, I'm going to focus on guys like Hassan Reddick. Uh, Brandon Graham, Fletcher Cox. Uh, these guys, especially Hassan Reddick. Hassan Reddick has really kind of stepped up uh, the last couple of weeks specifically uh, to the point where he was actually receiving some, uh, he was receiving some votes in defensive award categories uh, when the NFL was going through their award ceremony on Thursday night. So the fact that you have Hassan Reddick, Brandon Graham, Fletcher Cox, consistently making plays on the defensive line for the Eagles, not just in specific moments, but consistently throughout the entire year and in the playoffs as well. I expect those guys uh, to make some plays as a whole going into the Super Bowl because, Kevin, when we look at the Eagles this year, the Eagles were one of the best teams in sacking the quarterback. They had 70 sacks as a unit. And 
you can't tell me that Brandon Graham, Fletcher Cox, and Hassan Reddick didn't have a part in the reason why that, that pass rush was so effective throughout the entire year for the Eagles defense. And look, they're going up against an injured Patrick Mahomes, dealing with that high ankle sprain, like you said, and there may be a chance that Patrick is not as mobile as we're accustomed to seeing him. And I think that's going to leave some opportunities for guys like Hassan Reddick, Brandon Graham, Fletcher Cox to win that battle on the line of scrimmage, get past the Chiefs offensive line and make some plays to either you know, get the ball out of Pat's hand a little bit quicker or potentially get some sacks. So overall, I focused a little bit more on the defensive side of the ball just because I think that you know these battles that we're going to see in the trenches on the line of scrimmage is going to dictate a large portion of how this game is going to be played. And I do believe that if both of these defensive lines can get active in this game, uh, they will set their respective offenses up uh, for some potential big plays and could send their team uh, not only to a win, but they would be crowned as Super Bowl 57 champs. So just to kind of round this back out for my Chiefs X-Factors, I'm going to have Chris Jones and Frank Clark. And then to kick it to the Eagles X-Factors, I'm going to kick it to Brandon Graham, Hassan Reddick, and I'll throw Fletcher Cox in there as well. The fact that I picked the Eagles and totally butchered and forgot Hassan Reddick is beyond me. So to Eagles fans everywhere, I am so sorry. That was not intentional. I had a whole ass brain fart. And the moment you put the camera on you and you said Hassan Reddick's name, I was like, how the hell did I forget the leading sack, like the, the, the sack leader on that team? Like, dude, that's the definition of like just a very rough and long day. So again, to Eagles fans, well, well, my apologies. Well, well, to be fa- uh, to be fair to you, I, I'm not saying that I cheated, but I do have both teams and their depth charts right here. So, I mean, Still, to me, I should have known it, better. It, 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 it was pretty simple. I knew who I was looking for uh, for my X factors, but to me, you know, I wanted to be a little bit more focused on just the line of scrimmage. Because I know we always focus on guys like the wide receivers and the running backs, and you, def- you could definitely make cases for those guys for both teams. But, you know, sometimes you got you to gotta win in the trenches, bro. And I know that's not the most glamorous, and I know it's not the most fancy thing to talk about. But without those guys making the plays in the trenches, it could be a one-sided affair for each team. And I do think that guys like Frank Clark, Chris Jones can make those plays that can put the Chiefs in the hunt to win Super Bowl 57. Same thing goes for Brandon Graham, Fletcher Cox, and Hassan Reddick for the Eagles. So, I mean, to me, I think all of these guys that, not not just that I just mentioned, but you mentioned as well, they have their opportunity set for Sunday. And there are going to be opportunities that these guys are going to have. Will they be able to maximize it to the fullest extent possible? That is something that we will find out on Sunday. But overall... I'm super excited to see Super Bowl 57 kick off on Sunday. I believe the game kicks off at 6.30. 6.30. And, um, Kev, just to bring up one more point just before we kick into the NBA stuff. Honestly, I don't care about the fact that we lost to the Eagles in Super Bowl 52. I, you know, that, that was a great game. Um, obviously, I would want to see my team win. The only Super Bowl loss that will ever hurt me. That will, Giants 2007. That bring me un- I can't even describe it properly. The game that will bring me the most amount of pain as a Patriot fan will be Super Bowl 42. Kev, I cannot watch that game. 
I can't. It, whenever I see clips of it, it it pains me. It is the only game I can look back to. It physically pains me watching that game. Because as far as I'm concerned, like when we beat the Seahawks in Super Bowl 49, that was a game we should have lost. I'm happy that we won, but that was a game we probably should have lost. The Giants won yeah, the second yeah, time MVP around. Carol. The Giants, the second one around, that was more of a defensive one. Giants made an incredible play with Mario Manningham on the sideline. I'll give them, I'll give them props for that. And the Eagles one was a shootout. And Brady had 500 good, yards. That was a good one. Brady had 500 yards. Like, it wasn't because of him. I can tell you that. The defense didn't yeah. show up, but neither did the Eagles defense. The, de- the Eagles defense showed up for basically one play. And that happened to be the, the strip sack on Two. Brady. What was the second one? Malcolm Jenkins killing Brandon. Well, to be fair to Brandon, Brandon got like 30 yards on that play. And even when Brandon got hurt, it didn't slow down the Patriots offense, though. No, I know, but I saw that clip on TikTok with like a funny sound effect over it where it was like, I think it was like Homer's voice where he got (laughs) turned around. Don't! I thought it would have been more like a snooze thing. Like he like got put to sleep. It he was, was out. so it was so because they slow mode it too. I'm telling you, people are just so creative on social media nowadays. But that hit when I saw it, I was like, "Is he alive?" Like he it was, was it was one of the oh man, he it was, was such out. a good hit. It was a great it was hit. it was a good hit. But it was uh, clean too, so that was the best part. But you know what? Still doesn't hurt worse than what the Giants did to me in Super Bowl Forty Two. That that <sighs> game, that game, I will. There, there's some emotional scarring from that one. I believe you. Asante Samuel should have won you that game. Literally, it was right here. I think it was mm-hmm. like I think it was like up here. Went right through his fingertips. And there, there was also another play. It doesn't get a lot of attention because it was after the Giants had gotten the touchdown to go up to seventeen to fourteen. There was a play on third down. Brady throws. Okay, I'm not gonna lie to you. It was a seventy-yard bomb to Randy Moss. And I think I think Randy got doubled. So he was getting chased by the corner and then the safety over the top. He beat both of them. And Brady missed it by about a half a yard. Literally. It, it is one of the lar- it's one of the longest throws I've ever seen. And the fact that if Brady had put the ball like right here instead of like basically like on Randy's shoulder, and at that point it's just distance. Randy would have came down with the ball at like the 20-yard line, 25-yard line. And Brady threw it from like his 10-yard line, which is nuts. I know it doesn't get a lot of attention, but it's one of the craziest throws I've ever seen. You ever get a chance to find that play? I'm actually going to look it up after we finish recording because now I'm really curious. Like, bro, he was literally off by about a half yard. He just threw it a little bit farther. Honestly, I think probably only Mahomes... And maybe Michael Vick, because Michael Vick made that one incredible throw on Monday Night Football against the Redskins. Yeah, that like, 77 yard or whatever. Yeah, like, I think probably those are the only two quarterbacks that could maybe have enough distance to Josh get Josh could do it. Maybe, maybe. Josh has yeah. got a big arm. I, th- I think he'd be fine. It, but I know Brady wasn't really known to have, like, this big An arm, arm like coming yeah, out no. of Michigan. But the fact that... He basically threw it from his 10-yard line and got it to the 30 to 25-yard line on the other side of the field. In the air. In the air. It's crazy. 
it's one of the longest bombs I've ever seen. The fact that he was like literally a half yard short of hitting Randy. It's that close. It could have got us in field goal range and potentially tied the game. So I just, but, you I, know, I, I, that game just, it still, it still pains me to this day though, bro. We should have had that one. Yeah. It's yeah. 14 points, bro. 14. Undefeated season no more. But before we, we go down memory lane and we start giving ourselves PTSD for respective I games. I have PTSD from that game. I know. We do have to get into the hot topic of the day, and that is going to be the NBA trade deadline. There were some moves, and there was, uh, again, there was one big, super big move, and then it kind of died down after that. It was, you know, there were some other moves that kind of were made throughout the day and rumors, but it, 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 it always kind of like heats up as three o'clock gets closer. But then, like, I, I guess, like, I guess what I'm trying to say is we had the Kyrie trade earlier in the week, right? We had this all the rumors one. of Russell, we had all the Russell Westbrook stuff that was talked about. We had all the potential moves and all these different scenarios. Then KD gets traded at like one o'clock in the morning yesterday where like Kyle calls me and I'm like half asleep and I'm like, I, I, I saw my phone blink and then whatever, right? After that, I think it was because the bar was set so high with like a, a name player like Kevin Durant. Everything else after that was kind of like, eh. Like, you know, there was no other big name. So we're going to specifically focus on the Kevin Durant trade to Phoenix and what Brooklyn got. For him, and then we're going to focus on the Lakers and the couple of trades that they got and what they gave up specifically. Mm-hmm. So, Kyle, I'm going to kick this one to you, and I'm not going to do KD first because, again, we, I'm going to go with the, the Lakers. The Lakers went and acquired. Hold on, I have the the trade right here. The Lakers end up getting Mo Bamba, Devon Reed, a second round pick. They end up trading away Thomas Bryant, but they also end up going and getting. D'Angelo Russell, Malik Beasley, Jared Vanderbilt, and they alleviate that Russell Westbrook contract. Mm-hmm. The Lakers are 110% buy-in, win now, and I think that they made incredible moves. So what are your thoughts on Rob Palenka's uh, trade deadline moves today? I have to be honest with you, Kev. I'm actually pretty impressed with what they were able to do. I think the fact that the Lakers were able to move on from Russell's contract, I, Kev, that's a cause for celebration as far as I'm concerned. Russell's making like 40 plus million dollars a year. And even though that relatively speaking, he's having a good year off the bench, just from a strategic standpoint, he just, he doesn't bring enough to the table to get the Lakers to a point where they could be competitive in the Western conference. And that's despite the fact that LeBron James is going out here and basically scoring 35 to 40 points a game. But, you know, they move off from Westbrook, which is a step in the right direction. I do believe that they made the right amount of moves to be able to add some depth to the roster. Now, when I look at the moves that they made in particular, bring D'Angelo Russell back, I think that's somebody that can run the point pretty effectively. Now, is D'Angelo Russell going to go out there and drop you 25, 30 points a game consistently? No. More than likely, LeBron will still be that alpha-type role, putting up at least 25 to 30 points a game and still being a pretty solid force in facilitating the ball and getting some rebounds as well. But I do believe that D'Angelo Russell can go out there and score 15, 20 points and maybe drop you 25 points if you get some open looks and knocks down some three-point shots. And I mean, when you look at his stats this year, he's averaging somewhere around about 18 points a game this year, which is you know pretty solid. And I think if they're able to get that type of productivity from him moving forward alongside LeBron James, 
and Anthony Davis. I think he'll be a nice third option in that Lakers starting front five. To me, the biggest part is going to be their depth. Who are they going to focus on from their bench? And are they going to have enough personnel to be able to run a 9-10 to man effective roster if they're trying to get into the playoffs? Because there's no guarantee that the Lakers are going to make the playoffs. If I remember correctly, the Lakers are sitting in the 13th seed in the Western Conference. Now, you would think, well, there's no chance in hell that they're going to make the playoffs based off that standing in the Western Conference. They're 25 and 30, but the fact of the matter is is that the Western Conference has such a logjam from essentially the 5th seed to the 12th seed. The Lakers really just need to get on a little bit of a win streak over the next couple weeks to put themselves in a position where they can play in a play-in tournament situation. And if they're able to do that with the roster that they've assembled with the pieces that they've acquired in D'Angelo Russell, Malik Beasley, Mo Bamba, and Jared Vanderbilt, it could put them in the position to be more competitive in, in the Western Conference to the point where, oh my God, they're going straight to the finals. No, not going that far. But if they get onto, onto a consistent win streak and everybody stays relatively healthy, they have a shot to at least be a playing tournament candidate. And I think at this point, that's probably the best thing that they have going for them. And look, we've got about 25 to 30 games left in the season. This is going to be something where the Lakers are going to have to show what they have from here on out. And LeBron James has been playing out of his mind the entire year. Can these guys that just got traded to the Lakers make the plays to put the Lakers in a position where they can make the playoffs? Time will tell. But overall, the way that I see it, you got D'Angelo Russell at the one, Malik Beasley at the two, LeBron at the three, Rui Hachimara at the four, and Anthony Davis at the five with Mo Bamba, Lonnie Walker, Austin Reeves, and Dennis Schroeder coming off the bench alongside Jared Vanderbilt, who just got traded there. It's not bad. Is it enough to make the play-in tournament situation? Potentially. But I think just the fact that the Lakers were able to move off of Russell and bring some more depth into the fold, it sets them up for a chance to make the playoffs. And honestly, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, when it comes to the Lakers, um, obviously with that being Kyle's team, he's going to know their tendencies a lot more. But from what I can see on paper, it's a clear win for them just because they upgraded with the key positions that they're going to need. And that is, they need to be able to shoot the ball. LeBron James is going to be able to facilitate now to the corners. He's going to be having, he is going to be having a lot easier of a time when he penetrates, when he has the defense collapsing, and he has somebody that can actually knock down shots. When you're talking about D'Angelo Russell, he's an above average three point shooter in this league. He knows how to score the basketball, he knows how to also distribute. He's no Russell Westbrook in terms of court vision, but he is a feasible point guard that can make some timely shots. And then you obviously go into Mobamba. He can stretch the floor. We know that he can put the ball on the floor as well. So he's kind of like a hybrid big. And then, when, of course, when you talk about Malik Beasley, again, another good shooter. I would say probably a little bit more on the average side. But from what I've heard, he can knock down some key shots for you too. Then you talk about Jared Vanderbilt. That's a good rim protector. Somebody that can guard. Roy Hachimura has, has shown that he can play both ends of the floor as well. And when you talk about what Russell Westbrook was able to do, yes, he was a candidate for six man of the year. Yes, he is one of the best passers in the NBA. Yes, he has a switch that not many people have ever had in the NBA other than maybe Derrick Rose and what John Morant is trying to be. But for what the Lakers needed, it's just not working out. Between the turnovers, the bad shot selection, and his issues uh, on the court 
or sh- with LeBron James and kind of like the friction that he had in the locker room with uh, who's your head coach again? De- De- Devin Ham? Darvin Ham. De- Dar- Darvin Ham from the exchange that they had the other night when LeBron broke the record. Um, I believe that that was just kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. And of course, that ginormous contract that he was due, uh, obviously, for the rest of this year, just it, it, it was a, a long time coming that this trade was going to be necessary. So for what the Lakers gave up and what they received in return, I believe 100% that this is going to be good for them. I believe that they are 100% with this roster currently assimilated, either a play-in team for sure, or they are going to fight for that eighth seed with Anthony Davis and LeBron James healthy and this new team having a couple of months to kind of mesh and get together. I think that that is going to be enough at least to get them into a position to compete for a postseason spot. Yeah, it's just, you know, even though that we can look at the Lakers roster right now on paper and we think that there's definitely some potential based off of where we were just a couple days ago it didn't seem like the Lakers really had any sort of viable pathway forward to make the playoffs just because they just weren't getting enough production from the limited depth that they had to work with now that we have this depth can they be able to make a run and just because that they have the depth it doesn't mean that it's going to click and to me, I'm still pessimistic because even though that the Lakers made these moves and from a front office perspective, it seems like they are in a better position to move on forward. Darvin Ham's going to have to assemble the troops here and get these guys into a position where they can win games consistently. Because as far as I'm concerned, bro, you got LeBron at 38 years old, basically giving everything that he's got. And he's putting... 30, 35, 40 points on the board, and they're still losing. And at some point, you might just you might as well just throw your hands up in the air and say, you know what? It's like I did all that I could. It's just not happening because we're just not getting enough productivity from the rest of the guys here. But overall, you know, maybe they finally get it together and the gears start moving, the gears start clicking, and they finally get into a position where Honestly, just fighting in for a play-in tournament situation I think would be a win based off of where they are right now. 13th seed in the Western Conference is not a place that you want to be at right now. Granted, there there's a little bit of a gap between the Lakers and then teams like the Rockets and the Spurs who are literally at the bottom, not only the Western Conference, but in the NBA. But there's definitely some opportunities that the Lakers are going to have at their disposal. It's just... Can they consistently win? They haven't been able to do that really at all this year. They'll maybe win two, maybe three games in a row here and there, but then they'll lose like three or four right after. So they have to get on a situation where in a 10-game stretch, they have to win seven out of 10, eight out of 10, potentially nine out of 10. And I still don't have faith that they could do that consistently, but if they can win like seven out of 10 from here on out, maybe they had a shot. So, and the one thing that does help them out is that there's this huge logjam in the the Western Conference, basically from the 5 to the 12th seed. So there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of teams that are really like so far ahead in the Western Conference that it's just impossible for them to get into the play-in tournament situation. They got some opportunities. It's whether or not they're going to be able to maximize them. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. 
And that is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Agreed. So we're looking forward to see what the Lakers can produce. But now, the the next one. Oh, this boy. Is, yeah, this was... This was... This was the move that made me call Kev at 1 o'clock in the morning on Wednesday night because it had to be made, or, well, Thursday morning, I should say. It was 1 a.m. Uh, biggest trade that we saw the entire trade deadline. Kevin Durant traded from the Phoenix Suns. Oh, my God. Traded. Yeah, traded to the Phoenix Suns from the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, just to give you guys the details, I'm actually going to read the uh, the report from uh, Woj for, uh, straight from him. After three-plus years and a second trade request in eight months, all NBA forward Kevin Durant was traded from the Brooklyn Nets to the Phoenix Suns for a package that includes dynamic forward Mikhail Bridges, Cam Johnson, Jay Crowder, and four unprotected future first-round picks. And then what Phoenix got in return from Brooklyn, obviously they got Kevin Durant and TJ Warren. And I'm just reading the rest of the... Uh, reading the rest of the... They get any picks? Oh, uh, who the the Suns or the, the Nets? I, I think the Suns just got Durant and TJ Warren. I think this is yeah, yeah. The Nets it, 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 got all they, the picks. Yeah, they were shuttled to the Suns for a massive haul of first round draft picks. That's from Phoenix. That's what Phoenix is giving back to Brooklyn. So, and the first round picks that Brooklyn is acquiring are for 2023, 2025, 2027, 2029, and a 2028 pick swap. So, I just wanted to give you guys the details of the trade um, in its full context. But now we get to the fun part. Now that Kevin Durant is alongside Devin Booker, Chris Paul, and DeAndre Ayton, now it's whether or not that the Suns have a pathway to be a dominant force in the Western Conference and potentially be a finals contender because of this move. So, Kev, to kick this one to you, give me your thoughts on Kevin Durant being traded to the Phoenix Suns and joining forces alongside Devin Booker, Chris Paul, and DeAndre Ayton. Man, I got to start this off with David Stern is rolling in his grave. <laughs> if you vetoed Chris Paul going to the Lakers with Kobe Bryant, what in the hell do you think is going to happen when you allow Kevin Durant to join his second super team in the last decade? Are you kidding me? Like, this, this, this is what we're doing right now? Like, Kevin Durant throws a tantrum, not happy with how things happened in Brooklyn, even though he chose to go there, decided to go with a guy that's very inconsistent in Kyrie Irving, and then requests a trade, again, for the second time. I, it, I, I'm not going to get into what I think about KD. I used to respect him, but now that this is his second move out of a situation that he pretty much fully had control of because of his decision, I think it's just a little on the weird side. It's a little on the weak side as well. But in terms of the trade overall... We all know the personnel that Phoenix has now. When you talk about Chris Paul and what he brings to the table, Kevin Durant going there alleviates a lot of the stress. Chris doesn't necessarily have to score at all. He doesn't have to be the second fiddle to Devin Booker's offense. It's going to be the two of them. And Chris Paul, he's probably licking his chops right now because his job just became easier. All he's got to do is feed scores, and he's going to rack up assists. All he's got to do is put his effort on the defensive side and at least play somewhat consistent defense. Especially because Kevin Durant, spot-up shooter, creates shots for himself, as well as Devin Booker. Then you're talking about what they acquired on the Brooklyn side. I mean, you're talking about 
a great defender, a great two-way player in Mikel Bridges, a great shooter in Cam Johnson, and then all of that capital, I mean, who's to say that the Nets didn't win this trade? Because if if all is said and done, right, if, if Chris Paul ends up not panning out this year in terms of how he, because he's been very inconsistent, if the Suns falter, if the Suns don't win, do the Nets win this trade? I mean, I know that there's a couple more years left on Kevin Durant's contract, but with what they just paid DeAndre Ayton, what they owe Devin Booker, what they owe Chris Paul, now what they're going to be able to owe Kevin Durant, those are a bunch of max contracts sitting on the table. I don't know if Phoenix can continue to afford that with everything else on their roster. So they might have to make some financial adjustments come at the come come the offseason. But in terms of what the Nets were able to receive, I think the Nets did a very good job for the Hall. I mean, it's Kevin Durant. You know that one of the best players in the NBA, are, he wasn't going to come cheap. So I thought that this trade went very well. This gives Phoenix that that additional edge, that primary score, that somebody that can take that weight off of Devin Booker's shoulders. We all know that Devin Booker is no scrub. We know that he doesn't shy away from a moment. We know that when he needs to step up, he steps up, aside from Game 7 against Dallas, where Phoenix pretty much just disappeared. Um, this gives them so much more offensive firepower, and KD has, known, has been known since going to Golden State, has also improved on his defensive capabilities. He's not someone that's going to go and score and play no defense like Carmelo Anthony. He's actually somebody that can alter shots with his height. He can block shots as well. He can guard um, three, four, and sometimes the five, depending on who it is because of his length. So I will say that Phoenix 100% got better, but I'm not going to go as far and say that they're the outright winners. It depends on how Kevin Durant is going to end up meshing with his other teammates, how him and Devin Booker are going to coexist. And of course, what is Chris Paul going to be able to contribute? Like I said, is he going to just strictly become a facilitator? Is he going to be someone that's trying to incorporate his skill into the offense? We don't know. But from what Brooklyn got from Dallas and what Brooklyn now got from Phoenix, I believe that Brooklyn is in a poised position right now that we'll get into in a few minutes to be a team to compete with this depth on their roster and, of course, have the draft capital to go out there and either acquire more pieces or leverage just a younger roster. So... I say that this is a good trade for both sides. Obviously, with Kyrie leaving the way that he did, Kevin Durant not wanting to be there, I think it was just best for them to part ways, both of them. And the way that they did it, again, not the way that I would have wanted, but it is what it is. Overall, the trade was just incredibly entertaining. And just to kind of give you guys clarity, there were additional things that were added as the the trade had to be ironed out. So Jay Crowder did go to Brooklyn, but then Brooklyn traded Jay Crowder to the Bucks, And then they also had to kind of throw in another team, which included the Pacers. So the Pacers ended up getting George Hill, Serge Ibaka, Jordan Norwa, and three second round picks and cash considerations. So it was kind of like a four-team four team total trade. And then there were additional picks thrown at Brooklyn, two specifically from Milwaukee. So then Brooklyn also gets a 2028 second round pick from Milwaukee and a 2029 second round pick from Milwaukee. So overall... Uh, I think all teams end up winning here. Maybe not the Pacers, but I mean, at the end of the day, Kevin Durant's a Phoenix son, and they're looking to compete in an already super stacked West, and we'll see what happens come April. Yeah, well, I mean, when it comes to the meshing part that you brought up with Kevin Durant now joining forces with Devin Booker, Chris Paul, and DeAndre, DeAndre Ayton, excuse me, that's going to be something that I'm going to put a lot of emphasis on because, you know, when you build up these super teams. You know, the instant assumption is, oh, these teams are going to be in prime contention for a finals appearance and potential NBA champions. But as we saw in Brooklyn, when they formed KD, Kyrie, and James Harden, 
Kev, they never even made an NBA Finals as a unit. I think I saw a stat before we started recording that KD, James Harden, and Kyrie Irving only played a total of 13. Oh, 16? I thought it was 13. I saw something that said 16. Maybe that included the playoffs, but I don't think Kyrie played with them in the playoffs. Well, despite despite whatever the number is, is, it was under 20 games as a unit. Now, when KD joins forces with uh, the Suns, are we going to see something that is going to reoccur in Phoenix like it did in Brooklyn? Or are we going to see more consistency where KD is going to play alongside these guys that I just mentioned? Best case scenario for Phoenix is he does, and it puts Phoenix in a position where, honestly, Kev, sky's the limit here. If they mesh and they all stay relatively healthy, I think they have a very good pathway forward in the Western Conference, and that's despite the fact that the Western Conference is stacked once again. You know, obviously, you know, Kevin Durant is somebody that can get you 30, 35 points a game, and Granted, his role is probably going to change a little bit being in Phoenix's offense compared to what it was in Brooklyn because in Brooklyn, he was the number one guy. You know, Kyrie was right alongside him, but basically KD was the alpha here. Now, in Phoenix, it may change a little bit just because Chris Paul, Devin Booker, and De- DeAndre Ayton have been there longer and KD's coming into a new offensive system. It may take a little bit getting used to for KD. So maybe at first we won't see him as effective just because he's getting comfortable running their offense in Phoenix. So it may be a little bit rusty from KD for the first, I don't know, week or two. But I think after that, I think he'll be able to adjust pretty significantly in a positive manner for Phoenix moving forward. It's just, I keep rounding back to this super team part. Just because that they added Kevin Durant, it doesn't instantly mean that the Suns are going straight to the finals and that we are going to prematurely crown them as NBA champions. I have to see how these guys play together. And this was something that Kevin had brought up when Kyrie was traded to Dallas. Now, Kyrie's 1-0 as a Maverick so far, but Luka didn't play in that one game, and we still have to see how Kyrie and Luka are going to mesh moving forward. And that's going to be pretty significant because you have two ball-dominant players with Kyrie and Luka on the same team. When it comes to Phoenix now, you have three players that could potentially be ball-dominant players on the same roster. Obviously, they'll have to work it out. This is something that Phoenix as a whole is going to have to work out probably over the next week or so. And I think if they work it out properly, they'll be in a good position moving forward. But overall... It's a, I think it's a good move for Phoenix as a whole. It puts them at the top of the Western Conference as far as I'm concerned. They have a very good chance to claim one of the top spots in the Western Conference. And we'll just kind of see how it goes from there. When it comes to Brooklyn, Brooklyn seems like to me that they're in a position where they're building for the future. With them pretty much stockpiling a lot of these picks that they picked up in these trades before the trade deadline, you know they were able to bring back a pretty solid core group of guys right now. You could look at guys like Mikhail Bridges, Cam Johnson. You have Ben Simmons. Like They have a pretty solid team moving forward. And then you also have Cam Thomas in there as well. So overall, when it comes to Brooklyn, Brooklyn's going to be in a position where they're going to have to make a choice this offseason. Are they going to move on from these guys and get more draft capital back 
at their disposal? Or are they going to build around these guys that they brought into the fold by all these trades? If I had to guess, I think more than likely they're going to hear trade offers throughout the offseason. And if they get the right offers, they'll probably move on from these guys that they just picked up at the trade deadline and probably start a full rebuild. So overall, I think both teams here, when it comes to the Nets and the Suns, have positive ways to look at this trade. I think it actually benefits them. I think for Phoenix, it benefits them in the short term. I think when it comes to Brooklyn, it may benefit them in the long run. But overall, I think this was a fair trade amongst both teams here. And we shall see how both teams adjust with essentially new players in the fold for each respective roster. I'm going to agree with you 100% with the Nets aspect that you kind of went down only because I was thinking about the same thing. When it comes to what the Nets acquired and how much they acquired in a short period of time for just, quite frankly, two people, I think that's too good of an opportunity not to look at it and say, we tried the super team a multitude of times. And by that, I mean, obviously, everybody remembers the Jason Terry, Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett trade where they traded their entire future. And I know they didn't trade anything necessarily for Kyrie and KD as they came as free agents, but what they gave up for James Harden and all these other pieces, I mean, like I said, they've tried a multitude of times for the super team rebuild, and it just it, it didn't go well. If I'm Brooklyn, we saw reports from Shams, Woj, and a couple of other beat reporters that said there were even teams trying to reach out about Mikhail Bridges for three first-round picks. So I mean, I saw, if you, I saw a report that said four. If... If you look at it, right, they have the opportunity this offseason not to just offload players with their contracts and get more draft capital. They have Spencer on a solid deal for another year or two. They have Dorian Finney-Smith, who just signed a good deal with Dallas last year. Cam Thomas is young. You can get him for cheap. Nick Claxton is young. You can get him for cheap. Joe Harris has been in and out of the lineup because of injuries, so that's maybe another contract you want to move off of. But you don't have a bad group of guys. Again, Cam Johnson, another person that's going to be due up for a pretty decent contract. So it's like you don't have a bunch of scrubs, but you don't have a definitive number one. But if you wanted to, you can package a lot of these things for the next deadline, for the offseason. You can go get another number one that's maybe not happy in a specific situation and build with a good core and not have to give up a lot of assets. Yeah. Brooklyn's in a great, great situation for the future to say, all right, blow this up with remaining pieces and just straight up go young guys, like what OKC's been doing. Or you build on the young core that you currently have and you attract free agents because it still is New York. That market is always forever going to be somewhat appealing. And then you have the draft capital to say, you know what? Again, I gave Kyle this hypothetical, but it was more so for the Jazz and OKC because of the amount of picks that they have. The hypothetical was if Joel Embiid became available for whatever reason, it's not like they don't have picks to say, yo, if Kevin Durant got four, I'll give you six for Joel. Again, mm -hmm. all hypothetical, but again, it's not something that is not possible. So there is an, a multitude of different opportunities and avenues that Brooklyn can travel down if they want to go down. I think, I think the one thing that I learned uh, from essentially this whole trade deadline, and it seems to me this is the general direction I think most front offices are going, I think they're going the Sam Presti route. I think they're going to get in a position where they're going to start stockpiling picks. Maybe not to the degree that Sam Presti has done with OKC, but I think there's some good value that comes along with that because, Kev, I mean, whenever you see these trades take place, 
you know, obviously there's a lot of attention paid to the players that are moved in these trades. But I think the one thing that kind of gets lost in these trade packages is the amount of picks that get swapped between the teams. And, you know, bro, if you got seven, eight, nine first round picks over the next, let's say five to 10 years, and you got some good second round picks in there as well, you could definitely use those and use it to leverage some sort of trade potentially. Now, granted, you'd have to move some players alongside with that, but I wouldn't be surprised if the Nets are going to be in this mindset of, okay, we have this core of guys right now, and if they play well for the rest of the season from a business aspect, let's maximize their trade value right now so we can get more picks in return. And then we just kind of run, I don't want to say like a skeleton type team, because that would kind of be a little bit disrespectful, but it's like, you know, a team that is stockpiling picks for the future is not going to be a competitive team. I mean, look what OKC went through for a couple of years. OKC was in a position where after Katie, after Russ, the team just went full rebuild and they just completely started to stockpiling all these picks. And now they have shy who's been solid for them. SGA is but, disgusting, but they went through a period of, they weren't really that good. They basically started from scratch and they're starting all over again. Is that something that we're going to see from the Nets? And honestly, they have a good blueprint in what OKC and Sam Presti laid out a couple of years ago. Is that something that the Brooklyn Nets are going to follow? Since, like you said, they tried this super team experiment and it fell short. So. Twice. Yeah. yeah I think this one was even worse. Because you were getting KD and Kyrie, and you can prime. say James Harden, James Harden in their primes, like you just said. When it came to Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett and Darren Williams, they were at the end of their respective NBA careers. So that one, I don't look as harshly as this one. To me, this Nets experiment that they tried, it utterly failed. And honestly, I think it's one of the worst super team failures that we've ever seen. That's why... I we put out the short a couple of days ago saying that because I mean, bro, I mean, James Harden is one of the most prolific scorers in NBA history. Kevin Durant is arguably a top 15, top 20 player all time. And Kyrie Irving is one of the best point guards we've ever seen in NBA history. And the fact that they couldn't even make a finals because of that, just because they couldn't be able Eastern to work conference out finals at that. That's a failure. That is an unmitigated 100%. failure as far as I see it. So no, I, I think Brooklyn, they made up pretty good here all things considered. Granted, they're not going to compete for a championship anytime soon. But I think they've set themselves up in a position for the next three to five years. They're going to be pretty solid with their future prospects. 100%. And, you know, obviously with going in depth about these two trades specifically, there were some other trades out there. It's quite a bit. Kyle and I aren't going to bore you guys. You guys have already obviously probably seen this or heard. So we're going to give our opinions on who we believe won at the trade deadline and some teams that we believe lost. And like I said at the very beginning, Kyle and I are in full agreement, both in winners and losers. So rather than give our opinions on both and drag it out, I'm just going to straight out ask Kyle who he believes is a winner at the deadline, and he's going to ask me who the loser is. So Kyle, which one do you want to go first? I'll go with the winners. I'll go with the winners. So I'll pretty much just lay it out like this, you guys. So when it comes to my winners of the NBA trade deadline, I would have to say that the Lakers are at the top of the heap here. The reason why is they were able to move off of Russell Westbrook's contract, which was 
I mean, just a massive contract. And the Lakers have been trying to move off of that contract for months now. And they were finally able to facilitate, facilitate a deal with the Utah Jazz to bring back some depth for that Lakers bench and then potentially their starting five as well. And as far as I see it, you know, the fact that the Lakers were able to build pretty much what I would consider about a solid eight to 10 man rotation going into the last third of the NBA season. I think that's something that could bode very well from them, potentially to set them up for a play in tournament situation. They're the 13th seed in the Western conference right now, which means that they still have a little bit of work to do. But the fact that you have this giant log jam in the Western conference, basically between the fifth seed to the 12th seed, it wouldn't take that much for the Lakers to potentially get back into play in tournament contention. And, Look, when you got LeBron James leading the way, Anthony Davis alongside him, now you got D'Angelo Russell in the fold uh, since the Lakers were able to facilitate a trade uh, from Minnesota. I think this could set the Lakers up pretty solid uh, moving into the last third of the season. If I had to pick one more team as a winner, I know we just talked about them, it would have to be the Brooklyn Nets simply because it may not seem like they're a winner right now because it seems like any sort of potential of them trying to win the finals this year is pretty much out the window. I think long-term though, I think the Nets are going to be in a position where I think that they can make some moves within the next three to five years. They brought back a lot of draft capital in that trade with Phoenix that sent KD to the Suns. And right now they have a decent core of guys. You got Spencer Dinwiddie, Dorian Finney-Smith. You picked up Cameron Johnson, Mikhail Bridges, I know you had Jay Crowder, but then you traded him to the Bucks, And you got some decent draft capital on top of that. And if these guys play up to their potential, I guess would maybe be the right word, but let's say they just play pretty solid basketball for the next couple months. Maybe you get into the offseason and you maximize their trade value to even bring back in more picks, start a rebuild, and then essentially try a homegrown experiment in trying to develop a pretty competent team within the next, what I would say, three to five years. They tried the super team experiment with KD, Kyrie, and James Harden. It failed tremendously, and they have to go back to the drawing board, and maybe they have to start from scratch. That's something that they may consider this offseason, but I think overall, it seems to me that the Nets are a team that could potentially be a winner from this trade line, uh, from this trade deadline. I won't say right now, but I think as time moves on, we'll look back at these moves that they made, and I think it could benefit them in the long run. So those are my winners from the trade deadline, the Lakers and the Nets. And then for me, the losers straight up for me is going to be the Toronto Raptors and the Chicago Bulls. The amount of rumors, the amount of phone calls, the amount of tweets that people were receiving on a multitude of players on both teams. For the Raptors, there was rumors about Fred Van Fleet. There were rumors about OG Ananobi. There were rumors about Pascal Siakam. None of them got moved. None of them were taken off of this roster. None of them were in a, in a legitimate concrete package. Yes, there were speculation. Yes, there were deals that fell through. But for what Toronto has right now, four games under 500, sitting at 10th in the Eastern Conference. Yes, they're in a play-in situation, but... As of right now, there's not a lot of leadership on that other than Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Fleet. It's just 
I felt that it would kind of be best for them to kind of sit down and just sit a whole rebuild. They ended up trading for Potal out of San, uh, San Antonio as well. So, I mean, they made a move to sort of improve, but a center is not necessarily going to go out there and win you games and really make a competitive run in the Eastern Conference. So that's why they're one of the losers for me. And then Chicago, I mean, they're riddled with injuries. They're also under 500. they They're at the nine seed, ironically. The only difference is the fact that Toronto has lost one more game. They're 5-5 five and five in their last 10. Zach Levine has been linked to a multitude of different trades. He was almost a nick from the reports that I had read earlier today. That ended up falling through twice in 24 hours. Um, DeMar DeRozan is not what he was last year. Lonzo Ball can't seem to stay healthy. Alex Caruso was deemed untouchable, but there was a rumor, speculation, whatever the hell have you, that the only way that they would um, take step away from Alex would be for two or three first-round picks. We all know that he's not worth that, but once again, draft picks are like at an Oprah show. You get a first-round draft pick. You get a first-round draft pick. It's just, I don't know, man. I can't understand how these two teams had so many players linked to so many different rumors and other teams, and nothing happens. Back-to-back years. So, again, those are my two losers. I can't make the argument that the Trailblazers are a loser as well because they ended up getting a 3-and-D player in Cam Reddish, and they also ended up acquiring Matisse Thibault to improve improve the defensive side. They're not... Um, needle movers in in the sense of, well, those two people make the Blazers a more competitive team in the Western Conference, but they did try to make some moves to at least help, and they traded away Gary Payton the second for five second-round picks, so I have no idea what the hell that was for, but neither here nor there. I would 100% say that Toronto and Chicago are my losers at the deadline today. Yeah, it's just, you know, I will say, Kev, it ended up being a pretty active trade deadline. I mean, obviously, it got started with Kyrie going to the Mavs. I, honestly, that was the whole Kickstarter. Yeah, uh, they got this thing rolling, and then it went to a whole new level once KD got traded. And then after that, it was just an avalanche of different moves that took place, basically throughout Thursday morning and then early Thursday afternoon. You know, to me, you know, the way that I see it, it actually lived up to be a pretty solid trade deadline as far as I see it. It's just it. Honestly, I'm just going to round it out like this. It is going to be very weird to see Kevin Durant in a Phoenix Suns jersey. Hell yeah. And he's that's, getting 35 back. That's what I heard. So that'll be very interesting because he was rocking number seven. For the in, last four uh, years. Yeah, in Brooklyn. But overall, it's going to be fun to watch how all these teams adjust post-trade deadline. And look, we're a week and a half into February. Still... A couple months out from the playoffs. And like I said, we've got about a third of the season left in the NBA. So this is going to be grind time for some teams. Uh, We've got the NBA All-Star break coming up pretty soon. I believe that's next week. And then after that, it's basically a sprint to the playoffs. So it's going to be very interesting to see how these teams adjust to bringing new players into the fold. And seeing whether or not the teams that made some pretty big moves or didn't make moves try to position themselves for a potential play-in tournament situation or a playoff spot. So I'll just kind of leave it at that. Yeah, it, it's it's going to be an interesting closeout to the year. But like Kyle just stated, we have a whole lot to go. And I mean, you know, maybe less than 30 games for the majority of these teams. So who's going to make that final push here? So definitely looking forward to how the NBA season closes out. I know that we said that's going to be the end of the episode, but... With today also being the end of the NFL Honors Award before the Super Bowl, I'm just going to give a quick rundown of who won the major awards. So MVP, 
Pat Mahomes, no surprise there. Obviously, you know, with him having the season that he did, this is his second MVP in his first five years. The Walter Payton Man of the Year Award goes to Dak Prescott. Offensive Player of the Year, Justin Jefferson. Coach of the Year is going to be Brian Dable, to the surprise of both Kyle and myself. They got that one wrong. They got that one wrong. I wouldn't say wrong. He turned around the culture. He found a way to make Daniel Jones look valuable. Saquon had a bounce back year, and their defense played exceptionally well. I'm not going to say it was a full-on mistake, but again, compared to the other people in this conversation, I don't believe that he should have won, but I agree with you. Definitely not the winner in our opinion, respectively. Um, no surprise. Geno Smith wins comeback player of the year. I thought it was going to be Geno or Saquon. I thought it was going to be really, really close, so Geno pulls that one out. This is going to be the most for sure one. Sauce Gardner wins Defensive Rookie of the Year. This wasn't even close, at least in he our opinion. He walked away with that one. He walked away with that one. Killed it. I believe he had the, the lowest completion percentage amongst all corners in the NFL as a rookie. Absolutely insane. The next one kind of confused Kyle and I. Offensive Rookie of the Year. Garrett Wilson, we thought it should have been Kenneth Walker without a doubt because of the impact that he had immediately as opposed to Garrett Wilson having on and off weeks a multitude of different quarterbacks in the last couple of weeks of the season. Just very odd for us, but, I mean, kudos to him. A good receiver in the league, young. He has the ability to create good plays for his offense, but Jets Kenneth Walker stu- deserved this one. Jets got some studs, bro. They got some good studs so. to work with, uh, especially these young guns. They got offensive, and, De- offensive rookie and defensive rookie. They're going to be nice. They'll be straight. And then to kind of close it out, to kind of just leave it at that, I mean, because the other awards are not, not necessarily meaningless, but just not as prevalent as the next one. Defensive player of the year, Nick Bosa. No surprise. Led the league in sacks, a force to be reckoned with. Both both, are, both Bosa brothers are just forces of nature that cannot be stopped. And, uh, you know, like we said, no surprise here. The secondary uh, players that were on this list were Micah Parsons and Chris Jones, both, have, both having incredible years, in my opinion. Um, even though I forgot his name earlier, Hassan Reddick probably should have been in this discussion because he had better statistics than Micah Parsons. But again, that's neither here nor there. People just love them, the Dallas Cowboys. I think he got two votes. I think Hassan Reddick got two. Over Mike, I, like I said, I think Hassan Reddick had a little bit more of an impactful year based on how many people they had on that roster, and he was still able to lead that team in sacks, forced fumbles, and turnovers as a whole. Do, do you see what he did against the 49ers? Like how he single handedly was like just making plays left and right? That's what I'm saying. It's, it's just. Like, dude was going nuts. So. That's the NFL honors. I mean, the NFL Hall of Fame class for 2023 came out as well since it was NFL honors. So I will actually read off who was voted in this class. I am very upset as, again, Reggie Wayne was not voted for the third consecutive year. But it's okay. I will put Colts bias aside. So the class of 2023 for the NFL Hall of Fame is as follows. Rondé Barber, Darrell Rivas, Joe Thomas, Zach Thomas. Demarcus Ware, Don Coriel, Chuck Howley, John Klecko, and Ken Riley. I don't know who the last three guys, four guys on this list here are, but in terms of players, Rondé Barber's one of the best corners that have ever played this game for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Tiki Barber's twin brother, for those of you that don't know who it is. Incredible. Obviously a yes. part of that famous Tampa 2 Super Bowl champion. Great player. Def- definitely deserves it. Without a doubt. Darrell Rivas. Best cornerback of our generation, period. Yes. Without Rebus a doubt. Island lasted damn near a decade, and despite going to three different teams in a span of like three or four years, he was locked down everywhere he went. Super Bowl champion as well, defensive player of the year, all-time great Jet. 
rightfully so. Yep. Joe Thomas, despite his comments about Joe Saturday, Jeff Saturday, one of the best left tackles of our generation, absolutely incredible. Multiple Pro Bowls, multiple All Pros. I mean, Joe Thomas was absolutely a monster. What do you say about Jeff Saturday? He said that it was an absolute disgrace and kind of like made a joke about it and all this stuff. But like they they circled back and said months ago, like if the Browns were to call him, he would be a coach. Meanwhile, he had no coaching experience either. So like he was deemed a hypocrite and all this stuff. Like he looked really bad in the media for a while. Not that I didn't disagree with what he said, but for the mass media of how he went about it sarcastically, it was just a bad look. He looked like a real dick. Um, and then Zach Thomas, RIP, one of the best linebackers in the early 2000s and the late 90s. I mean, Zach Thomas was a part of the uh, the Dolphins for a while. And I, if I'm not mistaken, he was also a part of the... Uh, no, he wasn't a part of the Patriots. That was Junior Seau. Um, but another... Part of, part of the Cowboys? Maybe? Possibly? I'm, you, I'm dating myself here. I feel like want, I should know the answer. You want me to look it up real quick? I mean, it sounds like you're typing already. <laughs> I will look it up. And then, of course, we'll circle back to that, but and then to touch on the last player, DeMarcus Ware, one of the greatest pass rushers in NFL history. I mean, we saw him dominate for, as a Dallas Cowboy for a long time and then finally gets to hoist up that trophy in Super Bowl 50 for the Denver Broncos. So he finally walked off into the sunset with that championship, that hardware. But again, DeMarcus Ware, Ware definitely, definitely deserved to get in here. Kev, were you, talking, you said you were talking about Zach Thomas as, as if mm-hmm. he was dead. He's still alive. I thought he passed. Oh wait, no, Junior Seau passed away. Yeah, I got those two mixed up because they were on the same team. They were both on the Dolphins, weren't they? Yep, from 1996 to 2007, he's on the Dolphins. He was on the Cowboys for 2008. That so wasn't crazy. He, there was one year he was on. Wait, the, no, uh, Junior Seau was a Charger, not a Dolphin. Yes. I'm going yes. nuts. See, guys, it's been a long day. I'm not the happiest camper in the world today, but he hurt his back, here. guys. He hurt his back. He's hurt. Yeah, I hurt my back in the gym, so I'm not exactly the happiest individual in the world. That's why every time I move, like to change positions, you see me like wince. So that'll be great. Got to go to call the chiropractor tomorrow. But again, pushing through it, neither here nor there. That's going to close out the episode. Had to give the shout out to the Hall of Fame class, despite not having Reggie Wayne. You guys got to do better. Um, I'm, I'm still, and then if, I'm still heated about the damn coach of the year. That's nuts. I could have swore Devin Hester got in. I don't know how he didn't, because that's the greatest return man in NFL history. But I don't, yeah, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. I, don't get it. I, I, I don't know how you could justify Brian Dable being coach of the year with a nine seven and one record. Nine seven and one. Yeah, it's, Nick Sirianni. It's, it's weird. Nick Sirianni led the Eagles, who were a wild card team last year, to a fourteen and three record. And Brian Dable gets beat out by him. You have Kyle Shanahan, who had to go through four separate quarterbacks this year, got the 49ers to a NFC championship appearance, and pretty much largely did it on a third-string quarterback. Bro, that's that. mm -mm. I know Brian had a good year. I think they overhyped him. For this year, he had a good start. Don't get me wrong, but some would say it's because the personnel that Nick had, it was very hard to lose. And what Brian Dable had with the injuries to the wide receiver core and a top prospect wide receiver in terms of what Kenny Galladay was paid, and he was a basic dud. 
Daniel Jones was literally on his last leg. This was his final shot to even be a relevant quarterback. And he had his best statistical year in terms of limiting turnovers. He may have not had a lot of touchdowns, but what he was able to do with no receivers, I think that that is, again, justifiable. But if that's the case, you got to make an argument for Doug Peterson, too, because the, the Jaguars started off the season pretty crappy, and then they go and they get a playoff win. I, and that was with Trevor Lawrence. You know, the funny thing is, if you if you focus on with Brian Dable, so imagine had Daniel Jones gone out with an injury, and then the backup gets hurt, and then they had to rely on a third string. No, I understand. Trust me, like, Kyle I, Shanahan was my pick for coach of the year for I, that reason. And I think I picked Nick Sirianni as my coach of the year candidate. Yeah, you did. Because I brought 14-3, number one seed in the NFC. They ramped it up based off of how they got, which essentially got the Break speed off of them by the Bucks last year in the playoffs, and you pretty much just walk straight into the Super Bowl. Pretty much, I'm not gonna say unopposed, but it's like 49ers had injuries in the NFC Championship game. The Giants got absolutely smoked by the Eagles in the divisional round. I, to me, Nick's coach of the year, as far as I see it, or at least Kyle Shanahan. I, I would pretty much kind of limit it between those two guys. But I mean, look. The fact that Brian got it, congratulations. I don't think they got the right guy, though. I think they Agreed. I think they reached on that one, but that's just me. Yeah. So, guys, it is officially just about midnight here. We're going to wrap up shop. Uh, again, if you guys already don't know, tune into the Super Bowl Sunday, 630. Lock it in. Get ready. It's going to be a good one. And, again, for the NBA fans out there, the deadline has come to a close. Now we look forward to the All-Star game and, of course, the push for the playoffs. So we have plenty of content coming up over the course of the next few weeks. We appreciate all the support on any and all platforms. And uh, we will see you guys again Sunday evening right after the big game. Yep. Take it easy, you guys. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electrocast. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast.